Rundown, where every week the Fab Four get together. Today we are joined by a very special guest, Father John, who's going to give us some historical perspective on the things we're going to talk about today. Six trillion dollars, trillion with a T, monopoly money being printed by uh, the usurper-in-chief fake Catholic President Joe Biden. We've got Sumorum Pontificum officially under attack, we think. Sources are confirming it around the world. We're going to talk about that and how Father John foresaw this coming years ago, maybe even decades. Chicago. Chicago, uh, well, it's tough to be a Catholic in Chicago. I personally know two families that are moving out of there uh, because it's a Gestapo state. We're going to break that down. And then finally, Father Altman gets sacked. Is that is that Brother Chewy? Father Altman gets Chewy sacked again. And uh, this is the rundown. Let's get started. Honor to be with you this Friday evening, the 28th of May. Father John, thank you so much for joining us. A special guest. I hope you um, enjoy yourself this evening and, and are, are drinking something that uh, is of your own choosing. Yes. Wonderful glass. Wonderful water here. You see? Water on the rocks. Now, isn't it, gentlemen, isn't, it, isn't it a privilege to live in a country in which we uh, are forced to transact in monopoly money? <laughs> Uh, the, the fake Catholic usurper-in-chief Joe Biden has just announced that his, his latest budget is going to be the biggest budget of all time, Budget Buster Joe. Um, I'm surprised that he was able to even put this together because here he is, a side-by-side with a budget crusher, Ronald Reagan. Um, seems to me that when you look at the side-by-side, I, I'm not so sure that Joe even knows what his budget actually says. Here we go. My Coast Guard aides have been excellent. One of them taught me that And I quote, the Coast Guard is that hard nucleus about which the Navy forms in time of war. I can only assume that you will enjoy educating your family about how the Coast Guard is, quote, the hard nucleus around the Navy forms in times of war. You are quite, you're a really dull class. All right, so he doesn't look very coherent to me. Um, does he even realize that $6 trillion starts with a T, not a B? Um, it's an Ember Friday, gentlemen, and uh, we're, we're, we're here together, and, and part of my penance is, is being on a stream with you, Steve. So what do you, <laughs> what do you think about this, uh, this usurper-in-chief and his fake budget? <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Number lovely, number lovely. Uh, I don't know, I guess Joey forgot to go to the ice cream shop because uh, that's basically the only way we can get away from him doing anything bad. Uh, if approved, this will push the depth of levels not seen uh, since World War II. Uh, it drops the Hyde Amendment, uh, though it may, not get, it may not pass in the House or the Senate. Uh, 
it does increase the military spending by 2.7%. Everybody does that. Uh, raises taxes on anybody making above uh, 400000 I think. Raised, supposedly will raise $750 billion over the next decade, though there's a lot of... Uh, uh, greenish, uh, green piece stuff in here is in climate uh, hoax change stuff uh, because obviously he's part of the yeah beautiful great reset that's coming along that I hear we're winning against but I'm not <laughs> so certain on that. Yeah, there was there was some chatter and there has been some chatter on YouTube and Twitter from prominent Catholic sources who do say that we're winning uh, the war against uh, Biden and he he and Bill Gates are in retreat somehow. I'm not sure how that's happening. Uh, but I don't know, Brother Martin. I think that I think that Joe Biden, usurper in chief, fake Catholic president, he should be excommunicated or at a minimum barred from receiving Holy Communion. But also this week we saw some bishops in the United States intervening to try to shut down that process. <sighs> yeah, I heard that uh, Archbishop Gomez, who was the president of the USCCB, had received some letters from separate uh, different bishops from the the conference asking him to drop the agenda. Uh, from their their meeting uh, coming up, which prompted uh, Archbishop Cordelione to release a statement saying basically this is as bishops, um, this is precisely what we should be talking about. Uh, I also saw Bishop Raprocki from Illinois going on the uh, rolled over some EWTN channel saying that this is actually still a matter. This isn't just a matter of of where Biden is located in Washington D.C. or or in Pennsylvania, wherever his home diocese is, but it's a matter. It is a matter for the entire conference of Catholic bishops, precisely because a president travels all across the United States of America, shows up to parishes, and has to be, receive Holy Communion. So it is something that the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops <coughs> need to be need to be in union on, in the sense that they they do place a heavy emphasis on unity, on having the same pastoral practices uh, together all across the board. Uh, and so, if they want to continue. Uh, if you want to call it a facade of unity, this this unity, uh, well, then, then it is something that they need to talk about. Otherwise, they're they're somewhat hypocritical. Um, however, are, I mean, they are not somewhat hypocritical. They are hypocritical. <laughs> it's pure et simpliciter. There can be no unity without truth. Any unity without truth is at best a facade. It's a veneer. It's nothing more. We have one bishop in Chicago that wears a red hat, and another bishop in California, in San Diego, what's his name, McElroy, uh, and a few other bishops who preach a radically different God than the one the Catholic Church has always believed in. And if you want to attack me for that, attack me for that. It's the truth. Uh, and it's coming back, the bishops have to thank God that Bishop Poprocki, who's a canon lawyer, huh? And uh, Gomez and a few others have said, no, 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 no. It is our right and our obligation to discuss and to have a conversation mm -hmm. about how someone receives the sacrament of Holy Communion, which is the sacrament of unity. It's the bond of fraternity, as St. Augustine says. Uh, it's the sac you know, oh, oh, never mind, I'm going to start praying. Uh, <laughs> um, they have to have this conversation. And so thank God there are some bishops pushing for it. My fear is that they will come together and they will write a document and it will be like all other documents. It will have a few wonderful quotations and some pious platitudes and each of those bishops will go home 
and then do his own thing in his or her own diocese. Uh, that's what I fear with that. But coming back to Biden's $6 trillion budget and the Great Reset, uh, he's not alone. How can he be excommunicated when Pope Francis praises him for his endeavors? Today, the Vatican released what it calls its magnificent or stupendous uh, seven-year plan for the reclaiming of the ecology. And I listened in Italian to the Pope's little introduction. Not one word about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Not one word about the fact that our mission is the salvation of souls. We exist to get people to heaven. So I can't see anybody having the testicular fortitude to excommunicate uh, Joseph Biden in this environment. Do you? Over to Ryan. Ryan, is um, is it too much to hope for to excommunicate the president who can barely communicate? <laughs> Unfortunately, I think it is far too much to hope for. And you see the opposition on, on the, the, the Catholic left, as it were, Catholic in, in quotes, um, not just your Supiches and your McElroys, but your uh, Massimo Fagioli's, your um, fill-in-the-blanks of the New Catholic Red Guards on the left that are like, as soon as someone like uh, Archbishop Aquila or Bishop Paprocki or some of these other bishops that, um, you know, if anything, nothing else, they show that they actually believe the Catholic faith. And they just try to lay down what we believe, that bl the Blessed Sacrament is Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity. And it is in our canon law, as well as it is our formal teaching, and it's in Scripture, that if somebody is causing grave public scandal, or if he's in the scriptural side, if he's in mortal sin, but if he's causing grave public scandal by, by supporting evil and all these other things, it is the duty of the pastors of the church to forbid him holy communion. All right, it's in canon law. It's not like the, you know, and what these bad actors, your Supiches, your McElroys, your you know, fill in the blank. Oh, you're politicizing the Eucharist. You're you're, you're saying you're trying to bring in right wing politics into our faith. Um, and, and you know, it's it's so hypocritical. It's exactly what communists always do. Yeah. They uh, accuse you of the very thing that they are doing because it's it's actually they who are bringing in the left wing politics into the Catholic faith. It has nothing to do with whether you like Trump or hate Trump, whether you're a Republican or whether you're a Democrat. The canon law of the Catholic Church teaches those who cause grave public scandal, oh, I don't know, like uh, be the JOP for a same-sex wedding or uh, be one of the most vehement uh, supporters of abortion. And not just a mere, well, you know, uh, I'm against it, but my country's laws, I got, I'm not in charge of their laws. Uh, you know, I'll try to minimize what I got to do. No, guys, absolutely, rapidly pro-abortion. Every, everything he does is contrary to, you know, the, the, the Catholic faith, really. Yeah. Uh, and, and he needs, he can't be given communion because it's a sacrilege. It's a public sacrilege. Well, let me... So, you know, and that's that's one of the problems there. Let me frame frame it up this way. I sort of teed up that we were going to talk about Father Altman towards the end, but you can't help but mentally like sit back and wonder. A man like Father Altman is asked to step down. He's sacked from his parish, and a man like uh, Joe Biden, who wants to tear babies apart in the womb, is given is heaped with praises, as Father John has pointed out, by the Vatican themselves. I mean, what a what a weird world we're living in. 
Father John, can you can you help us understand the Altman situation? Because Father Altman, you know, from a lay person's <clears throat> point of view, if it sounds like if the bishop says you're gone, you you should be gone. But but there's some nuance here. It's actually just a request to resign. And so Father Altman isn't technically in disobedience by saying no thanks or I mean what what's what's going on? Well no. First of all, technically speaking, Father Altman is not being disobedient, not at this point. Uh when you are appointed a pastor, you have canonical rights. You become what they call in the law a juridic personality. And so the bishop cannot simply remove you. Uh, now there are some particular laws, and I'm not a canon lawyer, so don't take my my words as uh, very perfect here. It's rather general. There can be some uh, particular law in different places about the, the length of the term of the pastorate. But in canon law itself, there isn't an expression about how long you were appointed. Once you are appointed, you are a pastor. So for a bishop to remove a priest, there has to be a just reason, obviously. The bishop cannot just say, I don't like you anymore, you're out. What we don't know <clears throat> in this situation is we don't know the full story. And uh, because we don't know the full story, we have to be very cautious about what we say, either about Father Altman or about the bishop. I can tell you this, that I've been around for a long time, right? Uh, I'm not a kid, new kid on the block. What's happening to Father Altman something similar happened to me back in the early 90s and I did not go running to the press nor did I try to raise some money to defend myself I had a good talk with my superiors and I resigned and I walked away from the situation um, that may not be the case however with Father Altman so right now he has every right <clears throat> to appeal the bishop's decision and according to the law in the church when you appeal a decision then the decision is rendered impotent until the final decision is made. So he is well within the law, mm -hmm. Father Altman is well within the law to be doing what he's doing. Mm -hmm. I'm uncomfortable with the press coverage that we're getting for this. Part of me says, yeah, rah, 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 we've got to uh, be totally apparent about things. Yeah. But the other part of me says, ah, we're dealing with a bishop and his priest. We don't know everything here. There's got to be more to the story than we've seen. I don't know if that makes any sense. Well, what we do know, Father, uh, and I'll kick this over to you, Brother Martin, what we do know from the last time this happened, when this first blew up over the fall, is the the letter that Bishop Callahan released was excoriating uh, Father Altman for being divisive, and, um, and, and he was really focused on unity and tone and charity. Uh, never defined charity, nor do I think he used it correctly, Brother Martin. Um, so at least what, what we can infer... Uh, from you, from where you're sitting right now, uh, what's your take on the situation? Well, kind of what you mentioned a little bit before, or kind of alluded to in your question, um, here you have Joe Biden, who is a Catholic, uh, Justin Trudeau, who is a Catholic, uh, Nancy Pelosi, who is a Catholic, uh, Cuomo, who is a Catholic. Uh, all of them could do whatever they want politically. Like, it's like they have some sort of political Im immunity from the Catholic Church. To where the church will never say anything bad about, they'll maybe send a suggestion, oh, you should maybe practice your faith. It might be important. You maybe. <laughs> but then uh, Father Altman goes and says something hard and true, saying if you support abortion, you cannot be Catholic. A Catholic cannot support abortion. 
And he gets absolutely punished for it. Also, you have an, another James, fellow James Martin, going around running books published with rainbow flags on it, you know, this LGBT book or whatever, insinuating that it's perfectly okay to live this this lifestyle and, and remain Catholic. Father James Martin doesn't get punished at all right. for insinuating that you can continue to, to live a sinful lifestyle. These politicians, because they're politicians, no canonical penalties on them. Father James Altman says something political, he's divisive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's a, Mike, no, Michael, you made an excellent point where you said uh, about the truth being divisive. <clears throat> the truth can't be divisive. The truth is the truth. When I was first ordained, I remember one of my <clears throat> old priests at the monastery saying to me, John, you go out and you preach the truth, whether it fills a room or empties it, <laughs> preach the truth. And the Catholic belief has always been that unity is based on Catholic truth. And we possess it as Catholic Christians. huh? So if you want, it's what, what you have to do is submit yourself to the truth. You submit and you come in. Uh, and so Father Altman really to be disciplined for speaking Catholic truth is the height of hypocrisy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. He's speaking, I mean, I have not listened to all of his sermons, but the sermons that I've heard were perfectly fine. They were not, they were blunt. They were not meant to be offensive. They were meant to speak the truth as we Catholics believe. Mm. Now, if that convicts the conscience of someone, remember the old saying, the truth will set you free. First it will tick you off, and then it will set you free. Um uh, So when you're preaching Catholic truth, it should prick the conscience of the person hearing it. And, okay, if they get offended by that, they can't get offended at Father Altman for speaking the truth of the Catholic faith, you know? So there is hypocrisy on the part of the hierarchy here, I think. I really do. Um, And that's that's sort of the takeaway. I want to, there's a huge story. It's going to take up the majority of our stream here, and we're we're lucky to have... um, Father John, who has was actually worked with Ecclesia Day uh, uh, back in the day, uh, among other of his assignments, and we want to get uh, his perspective on a story. But I, but Steve, I want you to help tee it up because I think you and I were both kind of skeptical when this news first came out on Rotecelli's blog. You know, it's just a blog site run by, you know, a pro-vaccine middle-aged woman who is liberal with the block button on Twitter for anybody who is uh, vaccine hesitant. Um, And so there there wasn't a lot of sourcing on it. Now, I don't know, it does seem like there are more sources. Can you can you tee up the story and and tell people your your take and then and then we'll bring in um, the big guns to uh, to overturn everything you say? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, let the idiot go first. Uh, just to put a bow on what Father was saying, he brought up about uh, Pope Francis and the seven-year plan. He starts next year, 2022. If anybody's good at math, you can let uh, seven years onto that because you had 2029. Kind of a big year, what I hear for a phantom of fundamentalist. Uh, yeah, but he's definitely part of the reset. Cardinal Tommy Perkson. Uh, was all about it in the link that I saw two days ago about the implementation of Laudate Si' and the seven-year plan, which John Kerry came out with, and they're all they're about to do some kind of was geo was God twenty-six or something like that in a couple weeks, where we're going to get a lot of great research shoved down our throats here pretty soon. But yeah, the uh, uh, the annual uh, France is going to shut down the land mass 
uh, a sky is falling thing. I kind of want just to say, all right, I'll believe when I see it. I know the other guys have to make it. Oh, I can't hear anybody. Anybody hear? There you are. You're back now. I can hear you, but I can't hear Steve. Yeah. I anybody hear me? Everyone mute. Yeah, you keep talking, Steve. We got you. All right, so I, I, what I was saying was Father was talking about the uh, reset and Pope Francis and the seven-year thing. And if you do the math, it starts next year, 2022, and that goes to a certain year named 2029, namely that uh, Phantom of Fundamentalists uh, are pretty, pretty knowledgeable on that year. Uh, some people don't like to talk about that one. But yeah, it's, we're going to get a lot of great resets shoved down our throats from Kami uh, Cardinal Turkson, uh, his little article about Laudato C in the interview Bree uh, got a couple questions out of him, and the G O something I can't remember what the, the initials are. The acronym twenty six, where it's, it's happening in a couple of weeks. You go on the World Economic Forum website and their Twitter page; they got a ton of videos uh, about what's coming down the pipe. But yeah, again, we're winning. Uh, but yeah, about this uh, the the annual the what would be the seventh eighth annual land masses getting canceled. Uh, article or story. I'm the most ignorant one on this panel on this. I pretty much looked at it for probably about 30 seconds going, all right, I believe it when I see it. And uh, so, yeah, Mike, uh, tell me how much you don't know because I'm looking at it just as a skeptic. I'm going, okay, well, I believe if I see it. Uh, I, yeah, I got nothing else. It was a big deal in 2007 when uh, Pope Benedict uh, signed some arm to Pontificum. But Ryan, I mean, is the right way to think about this document, a motu proprio, as essentially an executive order uh, or, uh, that a president could issue that a subsequent president can just modify, rescind, uh, or undo? Is that um, is that the right way to think about it? I mean, c because if that's the case, I mean, like, this threat has been um, hanging over people's heads for quite some time. Right. Not precisely. Um, when, when a pope, even when a pope issues a, a, a you know, a, a, a purely juridical document of great moment, it's not the same as, say, a president in an executive order. There's there's basically a principle that popes have that very rarely do they actually want to reverse each other because the more you do it, the more you weaken the office, the more you suggest that what you're doing is transitory. And the very notion of law as we get it from the tradition arising from Aristotle and promulgated down to us through the schools of the Middle Ages and what have you, is that a law should be perfect um, until a better and more efficient law can replace it. And so you shouldn't be changing the laws all the time. And this is one of the problems we've had in the 20th century, specifically since Vatican II, is everything's changing all the time. Right. And so you're losing the, the, the sense of, you know, even what the nature of law is. And, you, and then you have less respect for the law, which is what Aristotle says. The more often the law changes, the less respect you have for it, roughly. I don't remember the quote verbatim. So 
um, you know, so it's I, I I did not believe. I mean, if, to echo what Steve said, it's like the yearly they're going to cancel some more on Pontificum, right? So I, I until recently, some of the reports I've seen have more or less suggest that it's going to happen. Whereas in the past, I was like, yeah, yeah, you've cried wolf too many times. So, it, but but also there's another factor here is that so what does some more on Pontificum represents? We talked about this last week or the week before. I forget. Um, is it an important document? Is it kind of eh, whatever? I, you know, and I, I opined it is an important document in a couple of ways. One, I mean, you look at, say, what the Society of Pius X was asking for. That is something that um, Samorum Pontificum is, is pretty much what Archbishop Lefebvre and then uh, subsequently Bishop Father Schmidtberger and Bishop Fillet were asking for, is that freedom for all priests in the whole world, no matter what happens to us, freedom for every priest to say the traditional Mass. So Benedict does that, and he even goes further. And he gives an acknowledgement that the traditional mass was never actually suppressed, which means it was always, in principle, permissible to do. Okay, and that's something that um, you know we could debate what the solution he comes up with in the terms of ordinary and extraordinary form and all this sort of stuff. But the I think the main importance of Samorum Pontificum was showing that this mass has not been you know. Uh, suppressed, it has not been dissolved, abrogated, whatever, it was still valid, even if in, in point of fact, in reality, it was banned, because any priest who would say it, we got locked up, suspended, thrown in a mental hospital, all these sorts of things that, I mean, the liberals whine and scream about how uh, liberals were treated before Vatican II, liberals like De Lubac and von Balthasar, it's like, yeah, you know, you're right, they weren't treated quite right, they should have been burned at the stake or something. But um, anyway, uh, you know, th they never suffered the way that they made faithful priests suffer after the council. Right. So Sumorum Pontificum was really a validation of what all those priests suffered trying to preserve the traditional mass, who basically saying, yeah, they were right all the time. Yeah, Bishop Lefebvre, he was right all the time in terms of that the mass was never suppressed. And in, in, in that that people want this mass. It's not just old folks who can't get along. It's not just society people. People in the church want this mass. And that's what Sumorum Pontificum represents. So it's suppression converse says what? We really don't care if you like this mass, and you're going to do our tambourine banjo 1960 show, because as far as we're concerned, that's timeless, and that's the only thing you can ever have. It also says, we really don't care about the suffering of faithful priests that we subjected them to. And it also says that, yeah, the, it, Sumorum Pontificum is just what we, you know, is something we'll tolerate. It's not something you have a right to. Yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty clear and, and, and good analysis. Father John, I want to kick the question over to you though, because <coughs> we're thinking about this in 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 like terms. I know it's not totally comparable to an executive order versus say a, you know weighing that against a constitution. But if in 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 that context, if a future president issued an executive order that said, you know, guns are illegal. Uh, but but we would sit there and say, well, you don't have that authority. Guns can never be illegal because of the Second Amendment. Um, when you apply that same analogy to Samorum Pontificum, and it says it says that the old mass was never abrogated, and it just says that that, that is just a true thing. Is that a truism that is true outside of Samorum Pontificum, or is it true because it's stated inside of Samorum Pontificum? Help people understand how to think about it. It's true because it's true, period. Um, 
don't forget that Pope Pius the Saint Pope Saint Pius V issued this missile in perpetuity, right? He said forever. Um, every priest may use this missile without fear of any kind of retribution or anything else. Certainly, even though what we call the Tridentine Mass comes out of 1570 with Pope Pius uh, V, it's much older than that, isn't it? For instance, I, I like to say this to the brothers here, um, we know that we have one extant copy of the, the Sacramentary of St. Gelasius, which is 373. Okay, 373, that's before the Council of Constantinople. And all of the prayers of all of the Sundays for the year are there, period. We also know that the Roman canon, uh, what the people who go to the Novus Ordo would say the first Eucharistic prayer, <clears throat> but the Roman canon, we know that that canon was used at the Council of Nicaea in 325. It wasn't totally complete. The complete version was completed, though, by 381 and used at the Con Council of Constantinople. So when we talk about this missile, we're not talking about a 15th or 16th century construct. We're talking about something that is the patrimony of the Catholic religion, of the Catholic Church. It was not revolutionary. It was, and I hate to use the word, but it was evolutionary. It gradually came about in the history of the Church. So with or without Sumorum Pontificum, this Mass cannot be called evil or vile or as, what is his name, uh, he teaches at Villanova University, Italian name. Fagioli. 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 Max Beans has said recently, you can have the Latin Mass, but not the 16th century theology that goes with it. This goes to show, he said, I'm blocked by him. That's that's not what a theologian would say. That's what a bad historian I would say. Father, I, who would block who would block you on Twitter? You're so nice. I try to be to everyone. God bless them. <laughs> In any case, the point is the truth of this missile is um, it's it's grounded in in the fact that it has this ancientness about it, and it communicates so beautifully Catholic truth. Now we also have councils and popes. Pope Gregory the Great, etc., who have given it other sides of legal approbations or uh, buttresses to protect it. And I think that ultimately is what Pope Benedict XVI wanted to do in Sumorum Pontificum. He made the point that I argued years before, incidentally, I want you to know, um, that Pope Paul VI did not abrogate the Mass. He abrogated it. Now, for those who are lawyers or canon lawyers, you know the difference between abrogation and obrogation. Abrogation means to suppress something, huh? It's suppressed. Obrogation leaves it in place but introduces something new. Mm -hmm. And that's what Paul VI did with uh, Missale Romanum in 1968-69. He did not suppress the traditional missile. He introduced something new. Now, he wanted everyone to use the new missile. But that's not what was communicated to most of us. We were told that if you loved the old mass, the old missile, the old spirituality, you mm. were bad. The Vatican II was where the church is now, and if you did not accept this, you were no longer a Catholic. That's what we got. Yeah. Huh? But no, listen, the, the laseity of the traditional missile is rooted in the lives of the many saints that we have. 
It's rooted in the lived tradition of the Catholic religion. And so no pope can just on a whim abrogate or remove it. Now, there are some present incumbents who would try to do just that, mm -hmm. if you ask me. But even Paul VI was smart enough to realize he can't do this, because I agree with Ryan. Most popes don't want to undo what a pope did before them because they're undoing themselves in the process. Yeah. Uh, particularly right. when the man you're undoing is still alive. And I think, I think that <laughs> is really the shocking part, Brother Martin. Um, you know, I, I think in, in, in people's wildest dreams, nobody would imagine that Francis would undertake to undo Samorum Pontificum. And allegedly, there's already a draft document doing uh, just that. Uh, you know, the Vatican takes a long time to do these things. It's been around. This document has been circulated for quite some time. Um, Brother Martin, in terms oh, of... Oh, 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 oh John's oh, raising oh, his hand. Oh, 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 yes. Oh, oh. Everything you just said is wrong. Oh, what? Everything you Tell me. Is wrong. Let's go back. When was Pope Francis elected? What year? Right. What time of the year? March. Or what time of year? In the liturgical year. And it was the, uh, week, Lent. the week before Holy Week, right? And what was his first great pontifical act during Holy Week? No, that's that's a couple of weeks later. Uh, Take your time. Holy Thursday. Smell like a sheep. Oh, watch much of this. And have altar girls. So the first week that this man was sitting on the papal throne, he violated the liturgical tradition and the law. If he can do that, why wouldn't he suppress? Don't forget, this is also the Pope who, uh, three or four weeks later, uh, received a group of consecrated religious from South America. And they had a private audience with him, only, as you know, his private audiences are never private. It's kind of like his flights when he's in the air, and a group of traditional Catholics to welcome him to the papal throne sent him a spiritual bouquet. You know what? You all know what the spiritual bouquet is? It's where you, for you. You, know, you get people to pray rosaries, make the stations of the cross, attend masses, do spiritual things for some spiritual good. They had offered him this wonderful spiritual bouquet. At this meeting of consecrated religious, he made fun of it. He made fun of the uh, the uh, spiritual bouquet that was offered to him. Now, this is documented. This is not me saying this. Any man who can do that will try to suppress something. Mm. I'm just saying. Okay, sorry, brother. Go back to you. <laughs> I, I just got one question for brother Goose. Who said Advent? Somebody said Advent. I, I wasn't was ready for a pop quiz, Father. I mean, I, I, I can never take yeah, the professor I'll... out of Father John. <laughs> okay, I'm going to mute myself. You guys go ahead. <laughs> I'm watching. I'm watching dishes. I get pop quiz. I get, I'm what you know. Vacuum. I get pop quiz. <laughs> All right. Well, then, then uh, we'll continue your pop quiz, brother. In your wildest dreams, did you imagine that Pope Francis would try to destroy Samorum Pontificum while Benedict is still alive? Absolutely. I don't think really Benedict really matters to Pope Francis, to be honest. Uh, I mean, all this talk about you know, priestly celibacy, he's letting that go along to, to the point to where Pope Benedict has to co-author a book with Cardinal Seurat about priestly celibacy. Um, I really don't think he cares that Pope Benedict is still alive. I really don't think that goes into uh, how he's planning to administer the church. I really, I really don't think it matters to him. I think for a lot of people, um, Pope Benedict still being alive is very symbolic. And you'd think he would have some sort of respect for his predecessor as to not diss him in front of his face. 
Um, but I really don't think it matters. I really don't. I think he's going to do what he wants to do to make it irreversible. Um, I think he's been working on uh, repealing someone in Pontifical, but certain other things had to be in place mm-hmm. first. Um, because th- there's there's a certain level that the, the, the Latin Mass is going to continue to to persevere, especially regarding the, the Fraternity of St. Peter, the Institute of Christ the King, religious orders that opt for someone of Pontificum, like the Franciscan, the Immaculate. The first thing he, almost one of the big big things he did in the first year of his Pontificate was was attack the Franciscans of the Immaculate who were using the option and someone of Pontificum to use a traditional Latin Mass. But also, also one of the things that I've never heard any of the commentators mention Regarding Simona Pontificum, Simona Pontificum allowed priests uh, the right to fulfill their canonical obligation to say the divine office using the breviary of the 19, of 1962, the 1962 rubrics. Simona Pontificum gets replaced, that gets taken away. That gets taken, the priests have to say the Novus Ordo breviary now. Or is that not true, Father? Well, I really can't say. I don't have one. And there's a principle, nemo dat quod non habet. You can't be obliged to say what you don't have. And I don't have the money to invest <laughs> in buying a new liturgy of the hours, so I'm stuck with my Latin well, uh, <laughs> That's Sometimes not having something is better than uh, than having it. I I want to I want to bring Ryan back into the conversation um, on this topic because Ryan, uh, we were talking off air about the connection between Ecclesia Day uh, and its disappearance, and um, and the disappearance now of of Samorum Pontificum. It, it is as though it is as though, in my in my view, and tell me where I'm where I'm wrong, the Vatican, in 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 erasing Ecclesia Day, has given up on reunion uh, with the old rites and foreshadowed and forecast their intention to just crush us. I mean, is that is that an overly pessimistic way to look at it in your view? It's a pessimistic way, but I think it's also at this stage a realistic way, uh, given you know so many statements that that the Holy Father says, and so so many things that clearly shows what his actual intentions are uh, down the road. So with uh, PCED, when they got merged with the CDF, I looked at it and I said, "Well, Pope Benedict started that, and it's really just shuffling of, uh, of the cards here. It's not really a big thing." We, you know, at the time, Chris Ferreira um, of the Remnant wrote something uh, rather the opposite that this is a really important body because it's it's there to support um, you know traditional priests around the world and being a pontifical body as of uh, Samorum Pontificum. Then it it really was was helpful, and its disappearance will take away that traditional voice in the Curia in terms of uh, you know being able to stop things. Now, granted, if Francis had a mind to do it, he could still do it you know without PCED, but. Um, you know, so and, and I, I think that the current events have proved him right and myself and others wrong on that subject. So that um, you look at PCED, it's in the curia. You have, you know, people that can function within the laws, the rules, and the, and the, and the nature of the curia to get things done. It's present. But once it was gone, who else, who's there? It's all the people speaking against it, particularly the Italian bishop symbolized in uh, Paralin, who's the secretary of state, who also hates it and has very much been pushing to get rid of it. Some of the interesting baseball on the inside is that Cardinal Ladaria, according and they granted this is according to leaks and things that have come out, so we don't know this for absolutely certain. But so I'm getting most of this from Mesa Latino, um, a blog on, on traditional uh, issues, and and they 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 relate that Cardinal Ladaria, the prefect of the CDF, was 
trying to stop and that Samorum Pontificum should be uh, rolled back because of the problems it'll cause in the church. It will cause a lot of pushback, and he's especially worried about France. According to and according to another report, it wasn't on Messe Latino. Um, they said specifically that Cardinal Literari is worried because the traditional mass is going to outpace celebrations of the Novus Ordo in France. And something like this is going to cause consternation and problem may even lead to quote unquote schism and such things. So, and of course, Pope Francis probably doesn't care much about that. He's the one who said in 2015, Father John might correct me, I'll probably go down as the Pope who, who brought a great schism in the church and he laughed about it. Um, that, that's such a grave thing. I, I can't imagine why anyone would laugh about that unless, you know, your ecclesiology is such where you're not really concerned about things of that sort. So, you know, Pontifical uh, Commission of Ecclesia Day, it actually, you know, served a very important role in terms of, you know, keeping that influence in the church, managing traditional issues, and, you know, its disappearance, I think, it made it a lot easier. Because, like I said, Francis could have gotten rid of this if he wanted to, irrespective of the commission. Um, but it makes it just a little bit harder in terms of the Romanetta, that is, you know, you're, you're the local game in the Curia and whatnot. We, what folks may not understand, and I want to, I want to kick this back over to Father John, is that we are lucky to have someone who has been with it from the beginning. Father John, you had permission <coughs> to offer the the old mass probably before almost any priest in the world. You you had it signed by a cardinal in the in the Vatican. I mean, um, you know where the bodies are buried. You know where the skeletons are. I won't ask you to unearth them for us on live on YouTube, but. Um, <laughs> But could you could you at least clue us in on what was going through your mind in 1988, 1989, 1990? You're working for Ecclesia Day. You're thinking to yourself, "Wow, what a mess!" Um, <laughs> give us some. Give us young whippersnappers here, uh, who who you know, the, which is like 90 percent of, of of the TLM community are all young people who don't who don't have a recollection of what you've lived through. Clue us in on it. Well, the first thing, I, and I want to just fiddle, uh, circle back to Ryan for a moment. In 2019, when this new document came out suppressing uh, Ecclesia Dei, I took the same kind of tact or same approach as Chris Ferrara. I think he was bang on, to be honest with you. Matter of fact, one of the sentences in 2019 that struck me like a ton of bricks was this. And it also struck uh, Chris Ferrara. This is from the papal document suppressing Ecclesia Dei. Quote, considering that today, the conditions which led the Holy Pontiff John Paul II to institute the Pontifical Commission Ecclesia Dei have changed. So the conditions have changed. Noting that the institutes and religious communities, which customarily celebrate in the extraordinary form now listen to this. Have today found proper stability of number and of life. Stability of number and of life. In other words, you people have grown big enough. <laughs> I don't want any more numbers. You have found stability of numbers and life, recognizing that the aims and questions addressed by the Pontifical Commission are of a predominantly doctrinal order, and then he goes on to talk about other things. When I read that in 2019, <coughs> I said, <clears throat> they're coming after us. It's just a matter of time. So I just need to circle back. And 
I would advise any of you, I think uh, Catholic Family News has republished uh, Chris Ferrara's uh, article. Go back and read it and read it with a fine-tooth comb. Uh, coming back to me, yeah, I'm probably the last generation that remembers the old Mass as the normative or ordinary form in every parish. Uh, as a little boy and as an altar server, I served the traditional Latin Mass. <clears throat> we had an old priest in my parish. Uh, can I tell funny stories in this or not? Of course. All right. Well, we had an old priest, the very Reverend Father J.J. McLaughlin, P.P. and Vicar Ferrain. That's how he signed his name. He baptized me, and if I could, I'd pull out a picture and show him to you. In any case, he was our pastor during the tumultuous 60s. He had been there since 1948. And one Sunday he got up in the pulpit in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, and he took his beretta off and placed it on the edge of the pulpit, and he said, In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. It seems that we Catholics no longer believe in the Holy Ghost. The entire church went, <gasps> they were shocked. He said, I have a letter now to be read from the bishop. And he read this letter from Bishop William E. Power, saying that times have changed and the church needed to change with them and language that was archaic no longer communicated the truth in the same way. And so in English, we would no longer refer to the third person of the Blessed Trinity as the Holy Ghost, but as the Holy Spirit. So Father finished the letter, folded it up, put it aside, and he said, so long as I am the parish priest of reserve minds, there will be no further changes in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And he walked away, continued the Mass. I went through that. <clears throat> so I remember the traditional Latin Mass <clears throat> as the norm, and I remember the tumult. I remember them tearing the statues out of our church and ripping our altars out. I remember watching my grandmother cry that this has been her church all of her life. I w went through all of that. I remember watching the nuns who taught me go from long traditional habits to long habits with short veils, to short habits with short veils, to no habits, no veils, and God knows what they were wearing. And I remember them chiding me and chastising me for my attachment to tradition. And these were the women who taught me the tradition. And so I still marvel in the fact that we could so fast move away from what was so sacred to us. Now that is precisely what Pope Benedict XVI talks about in Sumorium Pontificum, huh? Sumorium Pontificum. How can we hold in disregard and disdain what was considered so holy to all these generations? I answered my call, and I was blessed to enter a, an Augustinian monastery that had already been ravaged. And all the young ones had left, so there were mainly just old monks there. And so we still had the Latin Mass, we still had chant, all of those things. So I had a decent formation. But in the seminary, I'll be honest with you guys, they were teaching us to be rebellious. Honestly, it comes down to the word ad orientem, or your orientation. huh? The traditional Mass, we turn ourselves toward God, and altogether we look at Him. In the new Mass, we're supposed to all look at one another. 
So we go from a God-centered liturgical practice and theology to a man-centered liturgical practice, sorry, a person-centered liturgical practice and theology. I endured that through the seminary. I was ecstatic in 1984 when Pope John Paul II granted a universal indult for limited use of the 1962 Missal. That's the first indult, right? Remember that. Uh, I asked my superiors to let me be ordained in the old rite, and they all scowled at me. But luckily I'm biritual because I'm Byzantine rite. So I was able to have Byzantine and Roman bishops present for my ordination. It's another story. My first mass was held, I was ordained on a Saturday afternoon. And Brother Martin knows this. I don't know if Michael does, but... I've seen pictures. My first Mass took place at 11 o'clock at night in a retreat house chapel on the day I was ordained. And it was a solemn, high, Latin, tridentine Mass with my classmates singing the Mass. Wow. Of course, we were told all of this was illegal. So I've been invested in the traditional Mass and the faith of the Church since I was a child and certainly as a young priest. So I was delighted to be sent to Rome by very liberal superiors. And of course, I get there just as Archbishop Lefebvre was consecrating bishops. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, I was saddened by it, but deep down I also understood his reasoning. I understood his reasoning. I understood it. In any case, uh, I arrived in, in, in Rome, it was in the summer of 88, just after the consecrations that I was in Rome itself. And I ran into uh, Paul Augustine Cardinal Meyer on St. Peter's Square. Stop me if you want me to finish this. Keep going. I can make I, it. I, I, you, okay. you have 300 people who are, who are glued to the screens right now. Mm. Well, 300, 304 because it doesn't count us. So I'm walking across St. Peter's Square and I see Paul Augustine Cardinal Meyer walking with his traditional valise. It's one of these things. Let's see if I can show it. This, uh, can I get this out here? There we go. Uh, uh, maybe. There we go, sort of. Okay, there. Uh, leather valise. <clears throat> and <clears throat> I walked up to him, and I'm in my Augustinian habit. And he says, oh, Father. He spoke, he, he, he spoke, well, he was German, but he spoke several languages. So we, we were able to communicate in uh, English. And he said, you know, I was taught by the Augustinians. I said, ah, neat, from Germany. And uh, I was able to tell him about my, I'd spent some time in the German province. Uh, and he said, what are you studying? I said, I'm studying spirituality and priestly formation. Well, his face lit up. He said, I am one of the writers of, of Aptatum Totsius, the Vatican II document on priestly spirituality. You must come to my office and see me. So I said, sure. <laughs> so I went to see him at Ecclesia Day, which at this point still did not have full juridical power. It was still a branch of uh, the Santo Fizio, the CDF. And uh, we had a wonderful conversation about people we knew mutually. And I said, Eminence, I would like to have a celebrate to celebrate the old mass. And he said, but you live at the Augustinianum. I said, yes. He said, but that will cause disunity and division over there. They'll go crazy over it. 
I said, Eminence, the disunity is already there. Why can't we be honest about it? And he looked at me and he nodded and he said, very well, we'll give you a celebrant. Uh, Camille Pearl was the capufficio, the head of the office. So he called him in and he said, write up a, a celebrant for father. I actually have it here, although the one I would like to show you, is, is in, it's inside the frame. But this one I keep framed. Uh, in any case, Camille, type, uh, Monsignor Pearl, typed up a, a celebrant. They brought it in and the cardinal signed it, handed it over to me. And I looked at it. And he said, what's wrong? I said, well, Eminence, my Latin may not be as good as yours, but it seems to me this text is saying I only have permission to say the traditional Mass as long as I'm in the city. And I handed it back to him. He said, well, yes, that's terrible. You can't have that. He said to Monsignor Pearl, give him a universal celebrate. So I was one of the first to receive a universal celebrate, which is countersigned by Cardinal Meyer and Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger. And I still have that, and I keep it on my wall. So I've been there that long. Now, what was happening? I think there was two things happening at Ecclesia Day. There was a tremendous sense of sadness that we were facing what appeared to be a schismatic situation. So that was there. Also, John Paul II was highly insulted that uh, this would happen on his watch. He did not want to go down as the Pope who was the Pope of a schism. So that was also there. But there was also a, a sense that Catholics who longed for the traditional Mass longed for a good thing, a good thing. And we knew that there were priests who were suffering terribly. And many of them came to see us. Uh, in my first year and a half there, I met priests from all over the world, from Ireland, England. Now. I dealt with some Italian, some French, uh, but mostly with English-speaking cases. And so we tried to do our best, but we were weak. You know, a, a priest would come, for, well, a couple of things. First of all, you'd call a bishop or write to a bishop and say, it, you know, we'd have maybe 500 people from the Diocese of Pakata write to us asking for a Mass. And... Uh, they had gone to their priest who said no. They'd gone to their bishop who said absolutely not. Uh, and then so they had no one else to come to but us. And we had no way to force the bishop to give them what they rightly deserved. So we would write letters to bishops begging them to have a pastoral uh, solicitude. Um, we had to, in October or November of 1988 send a circular letter to bishops. I can't say what the circular letter was about, but I remember Cardinal Meyer coming into the office and he said, well, let's not waste time. Just do this in Latin and send it off to the bishops. Myself and Father Timothy Cloutier were sitting there and we looked and we said, Eminenza non è possibile. Non possono parlare latina. Latine. We can't send something to the bishops in Latin. They wouldn't understand. And I remember the cardinal, a little tear came up in his eye. And he shook his head and he said, you know, fathers, it's a terrible thing when our fathers become our children. Very well, he said, prepare the letters in each, each language and we'll do it Latin and the local language. So there was a desire to meet the spiritual needs of the people, for sure. There was a sadness over the act of consecration. There was a hope that somehow 
we could bring healing. And certainly John Paul wanted healing. But there was also a blind side to all of this. You can have nothing unless you are willing to admit that Vatican II is just smurfy, beautiful. It's the bestest thing in the whole wide world. It's like chewy dog kisses. You know? And that I, I saw as a blind spot. Now, have I answered your question at all? You have. You've answered the question, Father. Um, so people understand who you are, your background, your point of view. You've also been a rector of uh, two seminaries and, uh, and, and a vice president of a Catholic college. Um, Correct. You've seen the revolution in the church. Are you surprised now that Samorum Pontificum is under attack? And in your view, what will the world look like if it does, in fact, get rescinded? And um, as a follow-up to that, what, do, what should faithful Catholics do? Well, first of all, <clears throat> we can't do what-ifs, right? We can't, uh, we can't say what's going to happen. Good Lord, uh, a nuclear bomb could go off tonight and destroy the planet. So we have... The world is in God's hands. And uh, I don't know what the future holds, but I know that God holds the future. So the first thing I would say is don't live in fear. We can't live in fear of tomorrow. We have to live in fidelity today. We have to live in fidelity today to God, to the church, to the, to the teachings of the church, to the mass. Uh, what I would recommend to every single Catholic today and even if you're lukewarm, and I don't care if you, even if you're in a state of original, a mortal sin, rather, if you're in a state of mortal sin, I don't start saying the rosary. Start saying the rosary. Sorry, somebody was texting me and said something about the world. Oh, oh, well, well, Ryan is saying if, if a nuclear bomb goes off, then he won't have to work on Monday. Well, there you go. No, seriously, what I would but say to everyone. Actually, we don't have to work on Monday anyway. No, it's Memorial Day. <laughs> what, I, what I would say to everyone right now is begin offering the most holy rosary. Uh, the rosary has a power that's unmeasurable. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is be tenacious. Look, let me tell you a story about the Council of Ephesus. You all know the Council of Ephesus, right? What was the big issue? Another pop quiz. What were the big issues of the Council of Ephesus, everybody? Ryan, Ryan, please. <laughs> 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 well, the big question, Nestorianism, essentially. Nestorianism oh, and a little God. bit of the Arian stuff was still there. And monophysitism. Um, and monophysitism. These are different isms. Basically came down to this. Is Jesus God or is he less than God? Mm -hmm. Ultimately. Ultimately. I'm trying to make this simple for the average watcher. All right. So a lot of people were saying, well, look, Jesus is bigger than man, but he's less than God. He could be created. He's kind of somewhere in between. And so they began to refer to the Blessed Virgin Mary as the mother of Christ. Uh, the mother of Christ. Now, that's not heretical to say Mary is the mother of Christ, mm -hmm. correct? Mm -hmm. That's perfectly orthodox, but it's less than the complete truth. Mm -hmm. Because Jesus is true God and true man of the same sub, consubstantial with the Father. Right? So the Nicene Creed says. So it's more correct, even though it's correct to say that Mary is the mother of Christ, it is more correct theologically to say that Mary is the mother of God, or in the Greek, the Theotokos. At the Council of Ephesus, the bishops were scared to death by the theologians, like I think is happening nowadays. They were scared by the then Catholic left, mm -hmm. and they were going to pass a decree that said Mary is the mother of Christ. And you know what happened to save the day? 
the little old church ladies, the babas, the bab with their babushkas on, the little old nonas, uh, abuelas, they picked up pictures of the Virgin Mary and they started marching around the outside of the council hall, yelling at the top of their voices, Teotokos, 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 Mother of God. The Matrix got him. <laughs> Did we lose him? I think we've lost audio. We've lost audio with, uh, with you, Father. Uh oh! There we go. We got you back. I I think the mother of God brought you back. The Theotokos. There we go. Theotokos. So the point I want to say is, if these little old ladies could scare the living bejesus, as they say, out of these wimpish bishops back then, then I say, you Catholic Christians, if you want the faith of the Church, if you want the Mass of the Ages, you have to be willing to push back as well. That is not disobedience. It's not being disobedient to hold to the truth, is it? No. So my feeling is I pray God that the Holy Father will not suppress Summorum Pontificum. He, I don't think he's that silly or that stupid. But if he does, he should be prepared for pushback. And we have the rosary. And we have all the saints of the ages, don't we? Mm -hmm. So that's my response to that. I hope that helps you. Well, I just wish Father had a personality would tell it how it, you know, tell it how it is. <laughs> yeah, I know. Brother Martin, can, can you serve the man a cup of coffee or something and help him wake up? <laughs> I'll serve. How can I serve him another question? <laughs> I, I just, I just, I just got an email from another priest who's watching right now, and I'm, I'm more and more, I'm discovering and, and looking for properties that there are actually quite a few priests who actually watch the rundown. Um, all over the, over the country, which is thank thank you, fathers, for actually giving us the light of day. I think we're we're important enough to listen to. But Father John, I have a question. And I think it's it's valid enough, and and this priest really wants your opinion. Yep. Uh, he, he's he's young, and so he's he's really looking for your advice. Yep. And I'm sure other priests would 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 like your advice on this too. Um, so he says, when it comes to the sacraments, the Church has spoken that ministers must take the tutorist position. In determining the validity and laicity of performing a sacrament, the Tudorist position is one of the strictest positions. In the event that Samorum Pontificum is overturned or modified in such way that diocesan priests could be forbidden by the ordinaries from celebrating the traditional Latin Mass without an indult, can those priests simply rely on quo primum and or principles of custom to still celebrate the traditional Latin Mass? Well, you're Are, talking about the Tutsiarist position, but keep going. Okay. Yeah, he's, he's all a Tutorist. Sorry. Uh, Are quote primum and or principles of custom a strong enough foundation to still be within the bounds of the Tutorist position in such a case? Yes. There you go, Father. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I can't, like I said, I'm not going to live my life on what ifs. And I'm lucky in a sense. Look, in case you, you've noticed, I've got oxygen on, guys. Um, I have a thing called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which basically means my respiratory system is shutting down, right? Uh, my body is no longer my own. It's like, well, look at me. That being said, the God brings good out of evil. And this is a physical evil. And I remember praying to Almighty God back in... 2014 that I wanted to have something I could offer to him 
for his church. And uh, be careful when you offer God something like that. And God said, fine, I'll give you something. And this is what he given me. As a result, I've had to resign early as a university uh, professor, department theology head, and as a uh, vice president. And I had to retire early as a priest. And uh, I'm happy to do that. I miss being able to administer all the sacraments to people. But I am so grateful to Almighty God that I celebrate and say the Latin breviary every day in peace. I don't have to deal with diocesan committees, parish liturgical committees anymore, uh, and I say the Latin Mass every day. And I cannot imagine doing anything other until the Lord takes the last breath out of me. And if I have to use uh, a perennial custom or uh, quas primum, or if I have to use uh, immemorial tradition, custom, I'll use it. But uh, Pope Benedict made it really clear. I think it, our, uh, Pope Francis is not a stupid man. I can't imagine him directly contradicting Pope Francis. I think what will happen, though, is they will try. And the other thing is, don't blame everything on Pope Francis. I mean, he's got a mechanism around him that's called the Curia, huh? And some of the people in those jobs in the Curia are not exactly squeaky clean. You know what I mean? I don't want to give names, but if you want, just look in the headlines. So don't blame everything on the Pope. But I think they're going to try to reduce the Mass to Samorum Pontificum to the following, that institutes of pontifical right that are already erected will retain the right to celebrate. Mm -hmm. That diocesan priests, in theory, have the right but they must have permission from their bishops to do so. So it looks like it's going to go back to a kind of indult. That's what at least I got from reading the article in 2019. Uh, I don't know. Beyond that, it's all speculation. Mm -hmm. But prayer always wins the day, gentlemen. Prayer always wins the day. And the other thing I would say, <laughs> watch now, I'm going to get in trouble for this. Traditional Catholic... Traditional Catholic families have babies. Liberals don't reproduce. Liberals don't reproduce. Have lots of babies and bring them up in the truth of the Catholic faith. Bring them up in the tradition. And that's how we win this. This is how we win it. You said earlier, in France, by the year 2030, there will be more people attending Latin masses than there will be attending French masses. Think about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. And um, you know, your story about the little old uh, Nonas shouting uh, Theotokos, um, well, the people who attend the TLM today are, by and large, young people, young men. So it ought to, if the little old lady scared the bishops back then, we ought to have an army of young people now to march around yeah. and, 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 I mean, literally scare yep. the uh, you-know-what out of them. Um, We've got to get to our final story, gentlemen, and then we're going to do our unpopular opinion segments. I, I trust, Father John, you have a mildly unpopular opinion you're going to share with us. Um, <laughs> I and, really uh, and, then, and then finally to the, uh, to the grifter segment. Chicago, Steve, if you're a Catholic in Chicago, you, you have to profess your faith to the COVID religion first. You have to show your papers. You have to show your passport uh, to remove the face covering from... Uh, the image and likeness of God, which is the human face. 
you were the first person that I know of to predict that this would become the norm, that you would have to have a passport to uh, receive the sacraments, participate in diocesan functions. If you want to be uh, a member of a scola or a member of the Knights of Columbus or a member of the church, anything, you have to present your papers proving that you've taken the death jab. It's going to spread from Chicago, and there are probably other places that we just don't know about that are already implementing this. Um, how, how bad do you think it's going to get, not only in the Windy City, but beyond? It was funny, Father mentioned about uh, reproducing. If you watch that video of the news uh, in Chicago, there's probably about, I counted like 15 people in the cathedral. They weren't under the age of 20. They weren't under the age of 40. They were all old, and they were dying off. And you go to any mass, any parish right now that's open, that's more traditionally minded, they're packed to the gills. And they all, the average age is probably, what, 30, 35, maybe low to high 20s. So like you said, the war attrition, we're going to win this thing. And they know it, too. That's why they're going through all this stuff. Mm-hmm. They know this is like their last stand. They're trying to, they were trying this, every year they're trying to do this. They know they're going to lose. Uh, Oregon, before Chicago, Oregon comes out, the governor. You have to have the uh, passport to get into churches. I haven't seen anybody in Oregon stand up against it, call it out. There's nobody that has the gumption to stand up to the state anymore these days. Chicago, the bishop comes out with saying that you have to have the passport to on working in good faith. Now, they're going to play that morality card on everybody after they've lied to everyone for over a year, they will tell you you're in the immoral part because now you got to tell us the truth on have you taken the vaccine or not. While these guys, again, have lied through their teeth for over a year. And probably I would bet that the archbishop there took the saline injection. I don't think he's stupid enough to take the experimental gene therapy one thinking that he's going to be the guinea pig. Ain't no way he took that and took the real thing. So he's probably lying. I'm not a speculation and all, but just I got a feeling he ain't in on the, what we're getting. So it just it's one of those things. I'm, it, you hear about that. There's been a lot of social media outtakes on uh, people getting mad at you for saying uh, uh, that it's immoral for us to go in and say, I take, I, oh, I've taken a vaccine. Hey, yeah, I was three, two, one. Exactly. I, I take, I've been vaccinated. Exactly. So, yeah, I'm not. It's like the whole thing of Jews. We don't have any Jews here, back there. We don't have any here. <laughs> but yeah, there's no, there's no morality issue on this. Someone asks you something like that, you tell them, yeah, I've been, I got, I got vaccinated. Yeah, they don't deserve us to tell them what they, they again, they've been lying through their teeth as, as uh, Mike's been doing, talking about the uh, uh, lawsuits. Yeah, well, there's something to that. At first, I was kind of like, uh, I don't know about it. No, they're performing mal- medical malpractice by saying this is safe and effective. Look at bears, 4,000 people dead. That's 1%, according to a Harvard HSS study, uh, four, 1% reporting. Count that by 10. Put that by 100. Uh, probably not 100%, so let's say 50%. It's a lot of dead folk. But for them to say safe, they're lying through their teeth. Yeah, and 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 the thing is, and and just to update everybody on the uh, pending litigation that I am looking at launching against the uh, USCCB, the criminals 
who are telling you that you have to take the experimental gene therapy in order to be Catholic. Uh, we, the, the, I've, I've spoken to some litigators already, and I've spoken to some people, some medical professionals who are interested in helping. A potential plaintiff has come forward now. Um, there's a case. We, we have a real case because it's not licit and it's not okay and it's not, it's not legal for you to place a precondition upon someone um, a, a, to, to take a uh, biomedical um, weapon into their bodies and as a precondition for them receiving the sacraments. And it's also not okay um, to use your moral authority to compel somebody to do something against his or her will, which is outside of your purview. Now, um, I want to bring in, um, I want to bring in Ryan on this point because we've seen cases during this, uh, during this chastisement that we've all been living through this most recent chastisement. We've seen cases of Priests who are in, you know, respectable orders and uh, who wear cassocks and they might even offer the, tra the traditional Latin mass who put out letters to their parishioners and to the world online saying that we owe our bishops obedience in all things but sin, um, that, the, that the bishops are better Catholics than we. Ryan, how can, how can we possibly at this point in the age yes. of McCarrick, in the age of, uh, of, of all of those unknown, um, unnamed uh, by Father John Ghouls in, in the Curia, how can we possibly be making statements like that? Um, it's hard to say the motivation for the particular priest that you're mentioning, which uh, folks who've watched this show or followed you on, uh, or myself on uh, Twitter, have, oh, you know, they we know exactly who we're talking about. So I don't want to excoriate him too much because I have no idea what's going on in the internal forum for the man. I know he's Australian, so he's they're trained to obey rather much, unfortunately, which seems counter to the grain because the more classical Australian was kind of the more rugged guy taming the Australian bush. And uh, I mean, you look at their national. Yeah, song, no, and this isn't this, this isn't just about him, but this is just about. But anyway, the idea. Yeah. So, so what? Why? Yeah, how can we say I, there? There's a desire. Some of it's the ghost of the 19th century. Some of it's the the misinterpretation of Vatican I that many people had, and we, which we've talked about in prior programs too. So I won't rehash too much of that here. But which now the expectation comes that whenever the Pope says anything, you have to obey. He's absolutely infallible. And even though that's the Vatican I did not say anything remotely close to that. So there's an attitude that we've had that whenever the bishop says, and we got to listen. Now, I, I tend to think before the council, most people, if a bishop would have started, you know, pontificating in some medical thing that somebody should do, they would have been like, um, I don't think His Excellency knows much about what he's, his job is, right? Whereas now, like, well, the bishop said it, so we should listen. There, there is this strange knee-jerk reaction of obey all the time, everything, even if it's, it's not within the purview of obedience. And then some people are like, oh, well, even if they don't have the right to command, you should follow it anyway. I was like, that only follows if you're in a religious order that has a peculiar oath of obedience that would require that or that's expected in the constitutions. If you're a lay Catholic, um, if you're a diocesan priest, if you're, you know, you don't have to obey the bishop when he tells you to do something that has nothing to do with his authority over you. And so in the case of the priest, it's more direct than us. And you make promises at your ordination to obey the bishop. So obviously, you know, with, with things regarding to, you know, church law and the sacraments and things like that, you would have an expectation to obey. But if the bishop tells you, you have to get the death jab. 
he has no right to command you to get the death jab. He can't tell you to get this medical treatment versus that medical treatment. Because then it comes down to you can tell you the thing I've ever and it's ridiculous. That's not what the notion of obedience is, even for a priest, let alone for a layperson whose obedience to the bishop is more remote, just in terms of he's their father, they're in communion with him, and you know, and he directs their diocese in matters of religion and faith. But you can't order someone to get a medical treatment and then try to inculcate that into the virtue of charity somehow. And therefore, oh yeah, therefore it's under religion. Therefore I can teach this because it's such a stretch. One, even if this medic, the the death jab was actually a a safe uh, thing and good, even if it was, which it's not, I mean, at this point we can safely say it is not Uh, with all the reporting and various more higher reporting of adverse reactions than any jab in the history of jabs go all even going back to the 1976 swine flu which was the worst of all jabs in terms of Guillain-Barre syndrome and all these other uh, adverse reactions Mm -hmm. so this one is is leagues but even if it wasn't they still have no right to command you to but you know and, and I don't just see this with bishops either you see priests opining with things um, you know sometimes you know deciding to go out and tell women you shouldn't be breastfeeding your kid what and we're not talking about the usual issues around modesty and that should you or shouldn't you be doing that in church. They're just like, yeah, you shouldn't be doing that at all. And, uh, oh, wait, you, you, you go sleep. Oh, well, that, that's, you shouldn't be doing that, even though most of humanity did that for 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. What the heck does the priest have to say about that to begin with? He stay has no business getting into the... Yes. Stay in your lane. And, and we're in the legitimate sense of that. So, I mean, and if the bishop is going to get out there and say, you must take this medical, you know, uh, intervention, then he is on the hook morally and financially for any adverse reactions that come from him, from trying to in, involve his moral authority to make you get it. And now, will that stick? Now, here's a, a little uh, extra data point to put in here. So, OSHA, um, and if you've ever owned a business or worked in certain types of industries, you know who OSHA is, Occupational Safety Health Administration. They'd floated a little thing saying, well, employers, if you force your your employees to get the jab, you might be liable for adverse reactions that come about that. And it didn't take long. It only took about a week and a half. And they withdrew that and said, oh, no, no, don't worry about that. You won't won't be liable. Yeah, just kidding. Wait a minute, wait a minute, what? (laughs) So an employer forced you to take a medical intervention and they're not responsible for what they force you to get. Oh. That's just completely asinine. And every, you know, everything's backwards. Uh, the, the the pharmaceutical companies who make this the the death jab don't. They're not liable for anything. The government's not liable for anything, and the employers aren't liable for, for making you get it. Um, you know, it's yeah. completely backwards. And and right? and, and it's so it's kind of like they want you. It's kind of like in socialism. Like if if nobody, if everyone owns something, then nobody really owns it. And, you know, with respect to the liability here, the, the manufacturers are indemnified, your employers are indemnified, government is indemnified. So really nobody bears the risk but you. The, uh, the, the government and the manufacturers get all the economic upside and you bear all of the medical downside risk. Um, and then you have the hirelings uh, with their croziers telling you that you have to take it. Um, as if that was not unpopular enough, it is time for our un- un- unpopular opinions where we go around uh, the horn and there are five uh, opinions now and it's a, it's a competition to see whose opinion 
is the actually the least popular amongst the five of us. We customarily start with Steve because uh, I just love starting with Steve. He's never ready, and, um, <laughs> and it's just perfect. So uh, we're going to do that again. Uh, yeah, I was hoping you weren't going to go that way again. I should I should know this by now. <laughs> um, hey, by the way, my my wife actually told me you were right on the uh, what you said about the uh, uh, Chicago. I told her the story. She goes, "Wow, you were right." I go, well, it's not like I'm Nostradamus. Anybody with two working brain cells could figure out what's going on here. <laughs> but I should have had my recorder ready just to ever ever say that. Uh, my own pop. Uh, well, it's being good lockdown again. Victoria is going down to lockdown. I had a clip on Clown Plant today about that. Get ready for that coming up in uh, the USS today uh, when cold and flu season comes around after the end of the summer. Uh, I don't want to get this channel shut down on Restoring Face, so I'll go to a little cooler on pop. You will have to show your uh, passports to go to Mass in the not-so-distant future everywhere yeah you've been saying it since august of 2020 you were called a uh, a hysterical conspiracy theorist by the same types of people who have public meltdowns on twitter and admit to losing their faith now you're being proven right you are being totally vindicated and um, those people are still grifting for quarter million dollars a year um i'd love to be wrong please I hope I'm, I'm, I hope I'm more wrong than wrong before. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, Ryan Grant, you always uh, you, you you always have the biggest variety of unpopular opinions. Um, <laughs> sometimes they're short, sometimes they're pithy, sometimes they're long, sometimes uh, they relate to what we talked about, and sometimes they're off the wall. I I, I always look forward to yours. Well, usually I'm trying to get more and more outrageous so I can somehow overcome Brother Chewy's manipulating the voting to, to make Brother win every time, right? <laughs> um, let's see. So what's... Uh, I just had it. I just had it formulated, and now I, I lost it laughing about something. So, yeah, yeah basically, um, taxation... When you pay anything in taxes, it, the, the thing that that same money has been taxed dozens and dozens of times, and where I just you shared a meme the other day actually, Mike, and I saved it, and, and I've shared that around to a lot of people. So, um, you know, and, and what the meme is, I mean, if you've got it, you can put it up, um, or maybe later you can put it up, but it, it shows a man looking at a monkey, and he says, "You're a dumb animal." And the monkey looks back and says, you pay taxes to pedophiles, otherwise you'll go to jail. And then he looks and he's all like crumbled and <laughs> he's been completely owned. And so that's where we are. Um, and so taxation, essentially, I, I won't say taxation is theft in the libertarian sense in as much as it is absolutely moral to ever have taxation for any reason. But I think the way taxation is done in this country by this government is immoral. And we are not morally obligated to pay our taxes. Now, we may do it because we don't want to go to jail. So in that way, taxes are like bail. Keeps you out of jail. Um, <laughs> but there's no moral obligation to pay taxes to this government that funds abortion, that murders people in the Middle East, that murders, overthrows governments, and does all the things it does in our name without our consent, really. And uh, then, you know, comes back demanding more money and more taxes and then devalues that money like Biden with his now $6 trillion, you know, budget 
And then we wonder why, oh, look, everything's costing more, you know, because of that. I mean, the government has zero moral authority to command us, to tax us, to do anything else, because it is completely destitute of any right over us whatsoever. That should win this week. It has to win this week. I don't know. (laughs) We haven't gotten to Father John yet. (laughs) So. Uh, uh, Vero. Indeed. Brother Martin. Would you like me to? All right. Well, I think. Oh, go ahead, Father. Go no, you go ahead, Brother. Well, I was gonna say yours. If, if you're, if if I know the one you're doing, yours is kind of like you're gonna win. Well, we'll see. So it's gonna. In order for me to give you my unpopular opinion, I have to tell you a true story. Okay, well, I'm going first then. I'm going first because you're gonna top everybody. <laughs> I'm not gonna do that. Go ahead. <laughs> top everybody. I'm, I just, I'm just saying. I know the father's story. I listen to these all the time. This is great. This is actually one of the things that we did for the old days. And you see, he's hooked up to an oxygen machine. This is, yeah, yeah cool. But what we did in order so that our community could have this excellent traditional formation that you've all have seen an example of today. This guy has been there, done that. He's experienced traditional line mass. What we did. He took his oxygen machine and just took it with us. So that way he, he stuck with us forever. That way he's, he's uh, able to give us the, the formation that we need in order to keep tradition alive. So I know the story he's giving, and I just want to go because I know I'm losing this week. I'm losing this week. Don't, and if don't, I don't, don't lose don't, this week. Just give us your best effort, though. Don't sandbag it just because you know you're going to get blown out yeah. of the water. Okay, I'll, I'll, here's my player opinion. If you're listening to podcasts every week, which includes this one, if you're listening to podcasts every week and you're not – praying consistently 30 minutes of mental mental prayer every single day you need the last podcast you need to listen to is on the rtf channel it's it's saint leonard of port maurice most catholics will be damned and then you need to stop listening to podcasts and start praying yep. that, Good. That's, my, that's my popular opinion you now, should father, win. You, me out of the water. you okay. should win you should win well uh, i have to tell you a quick story between me uh, and paul paul augustine cardinal meyer in the fall of 1990, <clears throat> I saw him one day and I said, Eminence, I'd like to take you out to dinner. And he said, absolutely not. I'm a good Benedictine monk. I'm not going to let an Augustinian friar take me out to dinner. How about I take you out to dinner? And he brought me to a restaurant. I won't say the name of it because it's still a very popular restaurant in Rome where cardinals love to hang out. And we sat there and we were looking at each other across a very small table. And I said, Eminence, I have to ask you this question. What the hell with this book of blessings? Now, if there's any priest listening, stop what you're doing and listen to this story. And he looked at me. I said, we have a book of blessings, this new book, which supposedly replaces the Collectio Rituum or the Rituale Romanum, and it blesses nothing. It blesses the people using things. You look at all the prayers, it doesn't bless a rosary, it'll bless the person who's using the rosary. It doesn't bless bread, it blesses the person who's eating the bread. I said, this is Protestant, this is not Catholic. And he got very excited and he said, Father, Father, you you are right, you're right. I said, but Eminence, you used to be in charge of the Congregation for the Sacraments. You're the one who signed this book into existence. And he said, well, well, yes, but when I first took over as the... um, the head of the dicastery, he said it was already prepared. It was on my desk waiting for me, so I just signed it. I said, Eminence, how could you sign a book that is not Catholic? How could you do this? And he said, well, they were putting pressure on me, so I did it. And then he looked, he said, but don't worry. The Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, refuses to use it. Think about that, gentlemen. Think about that. 
a book is promulgated that is not Catholic, that doesn't bless a damn thing. It's not Catholic. That doesn't bless a damn thing. It blesses nothing. And the Pope refuses to use it, but you priests are using it. That story that leads you now into my unpopular opinion. Oh, boy. What a, what a lead up. He's not gone there yet. <laughs> God can do whatever he wants. In the spiritual realm, absolutely. But humanly speaking, if Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre had not consecrated those four bishops, we would not have the Latin Mass today. That's it. Well, Father, Father, we're going for unpopular opinions, not okay. popular ones. Well, in a lot of people, that's an unpopular opinion. <laughs> no, I think you're going to win. Um, Depends on our demographic. I, I'm going to. I'm right. not going to offer a uh, unpopular opinion this week because I, I'm, I'm going to throw my support behind Brother Martin. Uh, you should watch or listen to the podcast that I did on uh, how few Catholics will be saved. It took me five different sittings to get that whole sermon recorded. Saint Leonard of Port Maurice was regarded as one of the best preachers of his day. He was authorized by the Pope. Uh, I think it was uh, Pope uh, uh, Benedict the Fourteenth is one of the one of the really good ones who had him preach to the Curia. And he used to he used to take that particular sermon around <laughs> Europe, uh, and 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 all he really did was was uh, retread what the fathers and doctors had said about how few Catholics will be saved. And it's important that we as traditional Catholics think about this because we tend to think gnostically that we have it going on. We've we've found the real thing, but imagine if 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 in Saint Leonard's time. When there was only the Latin Mass, when there was only the tradition, and there was there was no there there was no bogus ordo back then, um, and yet one in thirty thousand, he said, were saved. Um, they didn't have access to the internet and all of the vices that we have access to back then. So, what do you suppose are the numbers today? Um, so maybe that's a cross between an unpopular opinion and throwing my weight behind Brother Martin, but also we can only list four people on the Twitter poll, so uh, maybe Brother Martin and I will team up. Time for the Grifter segment. Mm -hmm. This is the part of the show where uh, if you've got something that you'd like to advertise or talk about or direct people's attention to, um, now would be the time to do that. I've already talked about my lawsuit, so I don't need to say anything more. Steve never has anything to grift because he's just a <laughs> perfect gentleman. Um, we'll do Ryan, and then I want to really ask uh, both father and brother about the astonishing fundraise that has been happening for uh, the monastery. So, Ryan, we'll start with you, sir. Okay, well, as you can see, I'm not in my normal digs. I'm actually traveling. I've been on a retreat. So I don't, I'm not in my office and I don't have books to, uh, to grift. Um, but I did just look at all the copies of uh, Bellarmine on the sacraments. I'm shipping out all the pre-orders. I've talked about that book every, you know, the, all the few weeks leading up to here. <laughs> um, I have a book that I'm just uh, waiting to have good enough internet to load up all the um, all the files for it. It started getting in the process for printing. Uh, Franciscans and the English Revolution. So, no, Franciscans and the English Prot Protestant Revolution in England. I can't remember the exact title right now. So I'm not looking at it. But it's a really nice little book, and it dovetails with everything I've been doing at the book club recently. I started a few months ago with John Fisher, did a next month's book on Thomas More. Last month was Rome and the Counter Reformation in England. Um, I kind of took a break from that as I didn't have this book ready, so I did a Cardinal Newman book this month, which should be shipping out to everybody, I think, Monday when I get back and I can do it. And now next month will be this book, the 
Francis Franciscans and the uh, the English <laughs> Revolution. So it goes through uh, obviously the beginnings of what goes on in England, and it goes through Franciscan martyrs who valued the faith more than obedience to the government. And so they continued to preach in the country. They continued to wear their Franciscan habits whenever they could. Both from the times of Henry VIII down to you know the, the Puritan persecutions in the England in around the English Civil War, 1660s, even the 1670s. Um, where, you know, the, a lot of them are martyred left and right. And so, you know, before they were able to return to the country after the 1830s. And um, it's a really good little book on that subject. It's not that little. It's about 300 or so pages. So you look for that coming out, being publicly available, hopefully in a week, I guess. I, I shouldn't give times because something always happens and it's later than I mean it to be. So I have another book on St. Therese Nauman, who's a stigmatist that should be coming out. And hopefully next month, I'll be getting um, another book by Father Philip Hughes, The Catholic Question in England, which kind of completes a lot of the stuff we've been doing. It talks about what, what was the state of Catholics like from, you know, about 1680 or so, that is from the, the so-called Glorious Revolution in William of Orange, down to the legalization of Catholicism in 1830. What was it like for Catholics in England? You know, and he fills in that lacuna with um, all, all the details and all the documents, and it's a really great read for that. Fantastic. Um, fantastic. Brother Martin, you launched a Give Butter campaign about three weeks ago. Um, you were hoping to get to $100,000 raised for the monastery uh, for the Oblates of St. Augustine. You're well over halfway there in uh, less Indeed. than half of the time. So you're tracking ahead of where you wanted to be. Can you give us an update? Sure. So we started three weeks ago because we need some some money to to put down a down payment on a, on a monastery so that we can we can have a place of our own that no one can kick us out of. Um, we're three weeks in. We've given out prizes uh, two times already, and we just did a drawing uh, for the third week this week. And the winner of the third week, which is a set of three Catholic movies, um, is Ain from Ridgefield, New Jersey. Uh, thank you, Ain, for participating in our and, and donating to the Oblates of St. Augustine and everybody else who's participated because we are we're, we're at fifty fifty four thousand dollars now, uh, which is over halfway. We're we're asking for a hundred thousand and just within three weeks. I was expecting ten thousand dollars per week, and so we're we're tracking very well. Uh, yeah, we're ahead of where we were what I was expecting us to be. So thank you guys so much uh, for participating so far. The next week's prizes, next week's prizes, we're moving up. Because, of course, um, each, each week you're asked to donate more and more money. And so the prizes also go up in, up in value. This week, we have not Catholic movies, but we have two beautiful icons imported from Greece. And they're even already blessed by Father John. Uh, also, you have, the, you have Our Lord and Our Lady, the Theotokos here, uh, imported from Greece. So you have this for uh, living room, prayer space, any, anything you want. Uh, so if you haven't donated at all, if this is your first time hearing this and you haven't donated at all, uh, the entry, the entry cost is, is, is $40 because we're on week four. If you've donated, um, prior to that, if, if you've donated up to $40, and of course you're going to donate more than that. If you've donated at least 40, uh, then you're, you're already eligible. Father John. I just wanted to say that those icons <clears throat> have real gold leafing on them. Brother, would you show them again? It's real gold leafing. And the gold leafing was done by Greek monks. So we're talking about a very prayerful sort of thing. 
And if you don't like Greek monks, monks, don't worry. I did a solemn blessing over those icons, so they're good to go. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Father John, I want to I give you the last word on, the, on this week's rundown. I want to turn it over to you, and uh, I want to give you the opportunity to uh, explain to folks how important it is that the Augustinian spirituality tradition survives and why you've provided your, your blanket of mentorship and protection on, um, on Brother Martin and the other brothers, um, and what you would like to, to see achieved. Well, my goodness. <clears throat> All of the different religious orders in the Catholic Church are given to the Church by God. Each charism is given by God, right? And so the Carthusians and the Cistercians were given a particularly contemplative uh, charism that's a gift to the Holy Church. The Benedictines were given a particular charism, uh, one of aura et labora, you know, to pray and to work, that's a gift to the Church. You look at the Dominicans, their gift to the Church was to preach the truth. To the Franciscans, it was to become poor like the poor, to witness to the poverty of our Lord, right? Uh, the Carmelites, to... Uh, to become poor with our Lord by praying for the people. Uh, and so to become contemplatives in the sense that they pray. The Augustinian charism, based really on St. Augustine, and his teaching is that we be of one mind and have one heart, intent upon God, living in one place. So that one mind means we all share the same faith, one heart that we share the same passion for Jesus that we live the common life together, and in living the common life, we seek God. Now, we exist to serve the church. That's our seeking God. And so education and other kinds of service to the church have all been part of the Augustinian, the Augustinian uh, outreach. So this charism is magnificent and it's beautiful. It cannot exist unless you have the same faith, and the same passion for our blessed Lord Jesus. So just as it's important to have traditional Benedictines and traditional Carthusians, Cistercians, Dominicans, Franciscans, Carmelites, so too it is important for the church to protect and have traditional Augustinian friars, priests, brothers, monks, nuns, lay people living this charism. And as you can see, I, I mean, People have asked me the question, Brother, Brother Martin, there's other Augustinians that people that follow the rule of St. Augustine elsewhere. I mean, canon regulars, all that kind of stuff. As you've seen from, from tonight's rundown, um, we actually have somebody who's, who grew up and, and was formed in the traditional Augustinian charism before the uh, wacky world, the clown planet world, um, took over the church. And so this is really what we have different from all the other people following the rule of St. Augustine is that we have Father John to give us formation. Um, that, that's, to me, that's, that's, the, uh, that's, the, that, that's the death punch, in a sense. Um, that's what we have different. If you have someone who actually grew up with the, the, and was formed by traditional Augustinians to, to pass on, I mean, that's, that's the root word of, of tradition, traditio, to hand on. Uh, to hand on what, and that was Archbishop Lef, Marcel Lefebvre's uh, Episcopal motto, to, ha to hand on what I myself have received. And that's what Father John's doing. Uh, regarding the Augustinian charism. So that's what makes the Oblates of St. Augustine extremely uniquely different uh, from every single community in the church today is that we actually have the traditional Augustinian charism and it is being passed down. 
Thank you so much for watching the rundown. Sorry, I keep muting myself. Uh, please make this monastery a priority. Um, if, if Father Altman's legal defense, which is going to cost less than 100000 if he can raise 10 times that in two days, certainly we can raise $100,000, one-tenth of, of what Father Altman has raised uh, for something that is lasting and permanent and needed in the world. God bless you. My name is Brother Martin Navarro, and I'm one of the founders of the Oblates of St. Augustine. Less than a year ago, we began our monastery in a building lent to us for free by some generous friends, but we've quickly outgrown its size. Now, we're asking for your help to purchase a property adequate for a traditional Catholic monastery to grow and thrive. We began the Oblates of St. Augustine as a response to the theological and spiritual crisis in our time. The Church needs monasteries faithful to the traditional theological formulations of the Catholic faith as expressed clearly in the Council of Trent, as well as opt exclusively for the traditional Roman Rite for both the Holy Mass and the Divine Office. Unfortunately, the significance of consecrated souls in the life of the Church has also been largely forgotten or misunderstood, resulting in the drastic diminished numbers of religious and the closing of many monasteries and convents. We wanted to found a monastery that faithfully lives the holy rule of our Father St. Augustine, where we can dedicate our lives to pursuing a conversion of life as a response to God's love for us, to the study of truth, most especially in sacred scripture, and in concretely living out God's love for us by loving our brothers and community. Consecrated souls are set apart from the world by God to merit graces for families in the world by their penance, sacrifice, and holiness. This is why it is imperative that we work to restore the traditional charisms of the religious life in the church and help these communities to grow in whatever way we can. This campaign is to do just that. Giving just $10 a week for 10 weeks and sharing this link with all of your friends via social media, email, or text can help us reach a milestone in an authentic reform of Holy Mother Church. May Our Lady of Consolation, our Holy Father St. Augustine, and our Holy Mother, St. Monica, intercede on your behalf for your generous support. Thank you.